At Gontrepreneur, we have heard from dozens of cannabis business owners who have encountered the issue of canna bias, which is when a mainstream business, whether a landlord, bank, or some other provider of vital business services, refuses to do business with them simply because of their association with cannabis. We have even heard stories of businesses being unable to provide health and life insurance for their employees because the insurance providers were too afraid to work with them. We believe that this fear is totally unreasonable and that cannabis business owners deserve access to the same services and resources that other businesses are afforded, that they should be able to hire consultation to help them follow the letter of the law in their business endeavors, and that they should be able to provide employee benefits without needing to compromise on the quality of coverage they can offer. This is why we created the Gontrepreneur.com Business Service Directory, a resource for cannabis professionals to find and connect with service providers who are cannabis friendly and who are actively seeking cannabis industry clients. If you are considering hiring a business consultant, lawyer, accountant, web designer, or any other ancillary service for your business, go to Gontrepreneur.com businesses to browse hundreds of agencies, firms, and organizations who support cannabis legalization and who want to help you grow your business. With so many options to choose from in each service category, you will be able to browse company profiles and do research on multiple companies in advance so you can find the provider who is the best fit for your particular need. Our business service directory is intended to be a useful and well-maintained resource, which is why we individually vet each listing that is submitted. If you are a business service provider who wants to work with cannabis clients, you may be a good fit for our service directory. Go to gondrepreneur.com businesses to create your profile and start connecting with cannabis entrepreneurs today. Hey there, I'm your host, TG Brandfault, and thank you for listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize cannabis through the stories of gondrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. Today, I'm joined by Antonio Frazier. He's the president of CannaSafe, a California-based ISO-accredited cannabis and hemp test testing laboratory, the first cannabis-focused lab in the world to earn the ISO certification. Frazier holds a Bachelor of Science degree from Furman University and a Bachelor's in Materials Engineering from Clemson. How are you doing this afternoon, Antonio? I'm doing well, TG. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to uh, share some of the story and uh, really get you to prod the information out of my head. I like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar with your work, so excited to see where we flow today. Yeah, man, I, I love I love testing guys too because you guys have this uh, this wealth of knowledge, you know, based on you know what you do with chemistry that that really excites me. Uh, before we get into all that, man, tell me about yourself. Uh, how did you end up in the cannabis space? Uh, yeah, so uh, as you noticed, or as you noted earlier, I am a, a I'm a materials engineer, so my focus is metallurgy. So I was working in uh, aerospace engineering prior to this. I was running a uh, internal compliance lab for a manufacturing facility. So you know, dealing with the foundry, heat treat department, uh, plating department, very technical stuff, but more mechanical. Obviously, when you're going to war, you want your jet engines to not to overheat or to be the most combustible. So yeah, just really. Really just, I don't know, nerdy stuff that was, really wasn't very human. It really wasn't very pleasing, you know. It wasn't very satisfying work. So uh, my uh, old college teammate, uh, Aaron Riley, who was our CEO, uh, actually got arrested for cannabis early on um, 
in school. So he was about three years, four years younger than me, but left the same year I did, although I graduated and he uh, got arrested. So we like to do like the Martha Stewart Snoop Dogg thing when you see us. We're like, who do you think got arrested? You know, <laughs> we're like, you know, who do you think someone? I guess people that are listening here can't tell, but I'm a six five black guy. He's a white guy. So it's just, uh, just, just kind of breaks the uh, fortune stigmas that our country's built. So anyway, who uh, he was trying to get back into the space. Uh, he actually finished his degree at JU down in Florida, got an MBA as well. And he was trying to, he, he was an entrepreneur, like 20, you know, three or so become a millionaire flipping cars and real estate, doing all these different things. And I was kind of like, well, you know, kind of really impressed with it. But he uh, started reaching out to me like, hey, you know, I'm uh, interested in what you're doing. Like, I hear your lab is ISO accredited. You know, I'm looking at cannabis. I think I'm hearing that that's going to be a thing. You know, one of the labs I'm talking to keeps talking about the ISO accredited and how important it is. And you do that. Like, can you help me? And I was kind of like, uh, no, not really. I'm not a chemist. I'm an engineer. Like, you know, I blow things up more than I do. I <laughs> analyze them. So it's not really my skill set. He's like, no, like, I need, like, a business partner to help me make sure, one, I'm compliant, and two, to make sure that I'm dealing with the right people. He's like, you know, you've dealt with these type of technical and background performance. I was like, I guess that sounds kind of cool. Yeah, I am kind of cool. You know, I was going to be kind of like, you know, talking me up, not really realizing him being an entrepreneur. He's selling me on myself. You know, he's kind of seen some things I didn't understand. So anyway, um, yeah, just over like two visits, he visited D.C. where I was at the time with my then girlfriend, now wife. Um, you know, he visited us a few times, made, made the trip one time, driving the Lamborghini, kind of a nasty <laughs> story. You know, if you just know Aaron, you just, you know, how appropriate that detail is. So some people probably laughing right now. Um, but any who does, just convince us to come out. Honestly, we eventually made the trip out to SoCal, and man, the weather just really for me and my wife were like, "Whoa, like, what is this?" You know, just like this is really dope. And um, opportunity to be a partner in a business that was growing. You know, we right before I think time I came out saying that cannabis was going to be the next internet. So we were like, "Hey, we don't want to be those guys that missed on Apple <laughs> at one point in time." So let's go out there and do it. So sorry, long story there, but that's really kind of how I got out here. No, and and you mentioned you know your 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 time you, you met uh, Riley through uh, through uh, football, and you know uh, to, I, I want to know about your experiences uh, as a college athlete, specifically dealing with sort of your views on cannabis at that time. Have gotcha. you know what, as an athlete did were you sort of you know. Uh, sidestepping drug tests or, or did you abstain? What were... uh, good question. Something I really talked about before. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so I guess, you know, certainly being an athlete on college campuses, it's, it's, it's not allowed, right? It's illegal. So it wasn't on the surface. Uh, you know, I think even the coaches knew, you know, there was one crowd that everyone knew smoked, you know, then there was the crowd that was kind of around the crowd, you know, so I think there was some some layers to it all. I mean, obviously Aaron uh, becoming the weed man at some point was quite <laughs> heavily involved with it all. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you had cold words for what you were doing after practice. If you want to talk about it, you know, seeing if someone had money to put in on it or, you know, making sure someone left weights quickly enough to go meet the guy that was pulled. You know, so just, we just had different cold words to make sure that, you know, everything got done because you couldn't talk about it. But for the most part of the time, you don't really realize it, but like, you know, if you're a college athlete, as much as you worked out, you know, as long as you weren't pretty idiotic, you could pretty much, if you had a day, you could get away with a test. Cause I mean, not a lot of fat on you, you know, you drink enough water, diabetes, that you can, uh, you know, you obviously can't dilute your pee either. That's also a trick, you know, like you also cannot dilute and just pee water. 
because uh, then make you that makes you stay in pee again. So yeah, but for, for the most part, everyone was pretty good. But there was a few guys that smoked enough to where they obviously could not, no matter what they did, <laughs> they were in trouble. I actually think I kind of got away with it because I was kind of the nerdy uh, black kid, and now uh, <laughs> I like twice maybe really and then, uh yeah and then once i started going to clemson especially because i actually took classes at clemson while i played at Furman. so i think by me not being enrolled in Furman, maybe i never was on the radar because my last three years i got none so <laughs> i was pretty i was pretty lucky there i don't know if they ever noticed that or not but i think this i assume just because um i wasn't enrolled at Furman at the time so the academia so i didn't get like part i didn't get put on their list of students uh to get tested, and I wasn't gonna ask the question either, so I just kind of <laughs> let. It. So I never understood why, but I, my last three years, I was drug test free, so quite lucky there. So, you know, being an athlete, uh, do you still sort of know other people who are maybe not in organized athletics, but um, are still doing athletic things that uh, are relying on CBD? Uh, to oh man. Absolutely. Uh, not only do I know people, it's becoming a large segment of the, you know, the people, the questions that we get as a business here, you know, people are looking for safe products because a lot of athletes are more concerned with what's going on in their body. They certainly, uh, topicals are, are definitely a, you know, even myself, I'm a huge topical user, you know, I wouldn't call myself an athlete anymore. Uh, <laughs> most certainly have, have embraced a dad bod, uh, three, <laughs> three kids in, uh, I'm certainly, I'm certainly don't, don't take as much pride in as I play as I used to, but I know I should. But anyway, um, no, most certainly have seen that crowd, you know, ask more, they're becoming influencers. Gronkowski has a CBD line, um, you know, I think there's a woman president of the NBA Players Union. She's invested in the CBD company. The NHL is very open about it. Uh, I think uh, the MMA, uh, what is it, uh, UFC, even has like some kind of like CBD or cannabinoid center that they're doing stuff with. So, you know, most certainly looking to get involved with all these things because of our athletic background, but we certainly see it as an opportunity. We do with athletes already. Uh, you know, we, we we definitely have some of that. They're, they're curious about it. I think a lot of them look for brands, though, so they may rather kind of go the product consumer side. But a lot of them are starting to see the safety angle of it. And honestly, if anyone's listening, you can come on and knock on our door and we're looking for partnerships in different ways to promote this, uh, you know, this athletic, this health and safety type uh, lifestyle of of what we do, because we want to destigmatize. You know, you guys said normalizing your intro, but we're all about destigmatizing because, you know, let's keep it real. It's the moms that are using this stuff too, you know. Yeah. Like a lot, of, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of these legal sales aren't the 20 to 25-year-olds that, you know, because they don't give a shit about it, it's tested, nor do they, nor can, can they afford the taxes for it all. So a lot of people supporting the legal market aren't necessarily a traditional stoner type because a lot of those people aren't really uh, participating in the legal market because of the expensiveness. I mean, and, and to your point, I mean, I, I the the closest dispensaries to me are in Massachusetts, and when when I go there, it's predominantly, uh, you know, folks my mother's age. Yep, <laughs> um, so, people don't realize that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting. So, so let's let's talk about the importance of testing, sort of beyond safety and compliance. You know. Um, one of the things that that I really like about sort of the the legal market is the testing aspect because I, I like knowing about the terpenes and the and the cannabinoid makeups, right? And I and I think that that information uh, helps us sort of break that indica sativa paradigm. Um, is that something uh, that it has but has become sort of uh, important to your work as well? 
Yeah, so, um, I mean, obviously, the Sativa versus Indica is kind of one of those things where eventually it's going to go away. There's so many hybrids, you know, it's not really, people realize it's not as important as it once was. Obviously, it can. Some strains are heavier than others, so, but, you know, you can get the characteristics in both type of uh, plant, but with the terpenes, uh, you know, there's things, you know, that, that really do have an uh, impact. The entourage effect from terpenes are clearly determining your experience, so that information is... Um, it's clearly becoming to influence patients and users, and that's what testing can do for you. And safety is a big deal because, quite frankly, a lot of these people that are sick, they have vulnerable immune systems. So, you know, you know, and obviously not everyone's intending to do something dirty, uh, but, you know, a lot of times if you cut your plant down too soon, it's a little too wet, you know, like you may dry it. Some people may, but not everyone will. And if you package it too soon, it will grow microbials, you know, while it's in the packaging. So while you may have packaged it up, it looks good. Two months later on somebody's shelf, it could be growing mold. Colorado went through a bunch of recalls due to that because they weren't doing the testing the, the, the proper way, but they put better rules in now. And um, another thing to your point, you know, if you're, if you're in the state that doesn't have legal access, you don't even understand some of this stuff. So you don't even know what it matters. And just because of your background and your mission, you know, you're obviously aware of the, you know, what's separating the legal versus the illicit market. And obviously safety and testing is that, is that barrier and price is the unfortunate difference too that make people lean towards the traditional market. Uh, but that testing is so important because of safety, but also to help us understand how to eventually dose this, which is beyond important to the medicinal effect. Cause you can't just, you know, flower. And unfortunately it's not, it's the botanical drug. It's not the best format for this medicine due to the fact that it's not really dosable. You know, as much as I enjoy it, I'm a flower guy. I will forever be a smoker. Uh, no, no matter how much people tell me it's bad for my lungs, uh, but uh, <laughs> but I'll keep it real. Some people are sick. They shouldn't be smoking. They shouldn't be smoking flour. They should be smoking vape devices, which is much cleaner, you know, aerosol. So it's, it's just about that education. That R&D part of testing, I think, is even more important to teach people how the mechanisms and what's important, I think, is even more. You know, we saw with the vape crisis last year, yeah. you know, people... You know, think, oh my God, these cars are twenty dollars cheaper again, and it's all the same. Huh? Wasn't the same, but man, and, you know, <laughs> and you get what you pay for. And unfortunately, it costs some people their lives, and some people, uh, you know, um, some really down times, some really bad times in the hospital uh, because of such. So we're going we're to talk about, you know, your lab played a role in, in discovering this link between vitamin E acetate uh, and the vape-related pulmonary illness. But before we get into that, I want to, you know, just sort of uh, make listeners aware of, of what ISO accreditation is okay. and, um, you know, what, and, and what it takes to get that accreditation. Got it. Well, yeah, let's definitely back that up there because we mentioned it earlier, but didn't go into it. So uh, it's uh, ISO 17025, which is the... Uh, the international spec that dictates how laboratories should operate, you know, and it's not a end all be all, but what it does, it says that this lab has gone under a audit and accreditation process through, through a third party that has determined that not only do they have SOPs and instructions for how to do the work, that is traceable so someone can come behind and see what happened. And then, um, and then third, there's some level of validation done to your methods. So they come in and make sure your methods can produce data to a certain level of accuracy and precision. And uh, obviously, you know, the tricky part is, you know, you can you can get accredited for cannabis things and plant, but, you know, uh, testing a plant versus testing a, um, uh, what is something crazy here, or a drink or a edible 
is very different. So therefore, that ISO accreditation needs to be understood even more in depth to account for all the different matrices and things that we see. So it's just the beginning. So someone can be ISO for potency, and then they're claiming, oh, I, I'm ISO accredited, but they, they can't test for heavy metals, and they don't do it very well. Mm -hmm. You're seeing in Florida right now, a lot of these labs have been ISO accredited for some time, but not for all the trickier tests that we're used to doing, and then they struggle quite heavily with doing so and they're not able, uh, they're actually not able to do those tests the way that they claim they can. So, so, so tell me, so, so tell me about that, that role that, that your lab played in discovering that link between vitamin E acetate and vape related pulmonary illness. So with, uh, VapeGate, the biggest, the big thing for us is that, you know, us being a lab, obviously testing cannabis already, it was honestly being in LA, the access to the illicit market. We literally had delivery service, illicit delivery service, bring us these dirty carts. So, so it was pretty simple to have. And we also test, you know, more vape carts than anyone else in the industry. So we had all the legal carts in the world. And then we had the access to the illicit carts pretty simply, which is where the CDC may not get all the carts. You know, we got them 20 carts delivered, whereas they may get, you know, the end use of one cart that a parent, you know, submitted after their child got sick, you know, so they don't really get enough material to test. So therefore, just being in the industry, because let's keep it real, it wasn't that much of a secret. Yeah. It, uh, it, it, it wasn't that much of a secret. So the industry knew exactly what was happening. Um, and we just had to figure out how to get the data available for someone to take, a, to, 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 uh, to take note of it. So that's, so, uh, so that's why we, um, we used the ISO accreditation. We got ISO accredited to test about many acetate to prove that we were doing it properly. And then that that obviously had been on NBC just cooked fire because not only had we done the analysis, you could the data was, you know, something you could stand on. It wasn't an opinion. It was something that we had actual physical cards. We compared the difference between all the things in legal versus the illicit, and it was clear that the acetate was in there for more than 10 to 30 percent. And this stuff is not good for your lungs whatsoever. So uh therefore, uh, you know, we uh we were able to make a pretty quick determination and CDC obviously then they confirmed it like 20 or 30 days later. So it's pretty cool to, get, to put something out and then the CDC uh, agree with you. So it really did change the idea of a cannabis lab to being like a, you know, forefront of consumer safety. You know, it, it really gave us, we had six big, we had billions of impressions from that, you know, um, from that interview. So it really did take us to the next level from just a lab to a brand that was in, you know, fighting for consumer safety, not making products totally different than most people are used to seeing. So and so as That's a sort of self-described nerd, how fascinating, how fascinating was this for you to participate in this? Oh my God, it was thrilling. It's why you do it. It was the rush. It was the news. It was, you know, getting a new assay online, making sure it was validated. It was all those things, you know, do you, you know, we had data, but then we decided to hold off on it because we hadn't validated our instrument yet. So it's like, well, let's, let's not put it out yet. So it was that, that concern of what someone else figure it out because the word was getting around what, what we were doing. But just being able to put it together and having an awesome media department also being able to put a report out. And honestly, we had 120 brands submit samples, legal brands submit samples to us during that time, too. So we just had the industry just stepped up. And I mean, obviously, it was good for us in our pockets as well, you know, uh, for them to step up and want to be a part of this and prove that their cars did not have this. And it, brands that don't test with us normally uh, just suddenly started submitting samples because they wanted to make sure they were on the right end of this. And it was really a good movement. It was a, it was a feel good, you know, it was science, it was industry, it was community, it was, you know, health, it was patients. They just checked every single box of what you do, of why you wake up. And then you can look at your bank account and see it grow. And you're like, wow, <laughs> you know, it's one of those, <laughs> one of those like euphoric moments of like, holy shit, we just, you know, 
helped change, helped save legal cannabis. You know, they were thinking about banning vapes, you know, so all yeah. these things were, were, were going on that we were able to shift the whole conversation nationwide from cannabis to illicit cannabis and separate ourselves from e-cigarettes and all those things with the kids and the flavorings. And because we didn't have flavoring, that's another thing people don't realize that we also determined that the flavoring wasn't an issue as well. So, so uh, you guys are celebrating National Expungement Week uh, over there, and uh, so I want to talk to you about some some social equity issues. Um, you know, I I've had a I've had several different conversations. You know, where where people have their own sort of take on social equity and what that means. Uh, so I just want you to tell me about the conversations you've had about social equity in the space and, and whether or not there's a consensus about whether or not states need to legislate social equity programs or should that fall to the companies just having to do better? Oh, man, that's a uh, great question. I think, well, to answer that direct last one, I think the answer is both. I think states have to mandate it. Um, unfortunately, people don't normally do good work unless they're made to. Unless there's some kind of tax incentive or something. So you have to make it... Um, to people's advantage, and yeah, I think that's just business. I'm, I'm not going to declare business should lose money to help someone else. It's never been a principle, so why make cannabis companies do something no one else ever has? Uh, and then two, I think cannabis companies should do better. Though honestly, we're here off the backs of a lot of black and brown communities who've been pretty effed up uh, generationally by the war on drugs. And uh, you know, cannabis is one of those drugs where the use is just as equal, no matter what you look like. The the, the pleasure and the, the ingrained in their community is well ingrained, whether it be through a guy on the corner, whether it be through the mom with a G-Wagon, you know, but, but cannabis is, is moving regardless. Uh, so I think cannabis companies, therefore, should be doing more to ensure these cannabis-related crimes, you know, these possession, these even selling, you know, like no one should be in jail, you know, for weed and now we got to make sure that uh, the residual effects, you know, that's people don't realize just because you're out of jail doesn't mean you're out of the clear. And there's so many residual barriers that I've learned about from my personal family being afflicted and now through the work that Social Impact Center does uh, in all age of learning how many other FUs there are down the road that makes it so impossible to reentry. And I'm actually actually working with organizations. So CSUN has a reentry program, just met their leader. I mean, she was formerly incarcerated as well, got her bachelor's and master's afterwards, kept her daughter, all these different things. But she was like, I had so much support. And she was like, you have no idea how many times I wanted to give up and how easy it was just to go back to the old life and just say, screw it. And she's like, if you don't have that support, um, you most certainly will rescind, as they call it or whatever. And she's like, it's not really an option. She's like, you kind of don't have a choice. And so it's really, when you hear it, from the actual stories, you just feel obligated to make sure that they have an opportunity. And, you know, and what I know is the community supports you, you're really going to be successful regardless of, you know, what. So for us, this is about getting kind of safe in the community and really changing something as opposed to writing a check to an organization and, you know, smiling on, oh, hey, 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 you know, it's like, you know, how do we actually change lives? I mean, I, I mean, I'm not saying don't write checks, not insulting anyone who does, but I just don't think it's as needle moving or as powerful as it is when you meet these people and you give them an opportunity to go to work. Because right now, one of the big issues is that the only opportunity for social equity is ownership. And not everyone's an entrepreneur. I yeah. mean, shit. Like, I mean, like even people that got arrested for drugs, maybe they were better entrepreneurs. They may not got arrested for drugs. You know, it's just that kind of stupid catch-22. It's like, why make someone run a business when not everyone needs to run a business? Why not? 
give their community opportunities, create centers, create these different things for allow them to overcome the damages, invest in schools, invest, like use the taxes from this community, from this, like, if you're gonna tax us so much, at least give it to the people that have been screwed over. Don't just, you know, divert it to some other fund or give it to the police. It's, it's all kind of screwed up. You know, it's like if, I think people would even be more attracted to purchase legally if they knew the taxes were going somewhere besides just up somebody's whatever. So, yeah. And that's a very interesting proposal that, that I, you know, that I mean, almost if you market it that way, like, you know, X amount of purchase from this product goes directly to, you know, sort of fight. Simple. The, it's simple, yeah. right? <laughs> it's not that crazy of an idea and it's not that hard to do. And uh, I'll never forget following the uh, New York City uh, legislature, they actually the Democrats, I forget the, Black lady's name, but she still talks. She's like, listen, I'm all about cannabis, but I'm not voting for this if it doesn't repair the communities. And they stopped the ballot measure because it wasn't it wasn't well structured for equity. And I was like, kudos to New York City. You know, she's like, yeah, I know we need to do this, but not the wrong way. Yeah. And you know, you know, kudos. I know it's you know you can call it politics, whatever, but it's real. And I, and I was really it was really powerful to hear them say that and to say, no, we're not going to do this because it's going to make us money. We're going to make sure the money goes where it should you know in new york's one of those cities where it's pretty clear to show what's been done how it works and the gentrification of new york city and certain parts of it now it's just not right you know for people to have missed out on, i don't know it's, it's just not right brooklyn's no fun anymore yeah i mean like <laughs> let's just keep it real like and now these people are misplaced and the soul that they built yeah brooklyn that we all adored is now not it's just weird man like you know like and I, and I started seeing some of it because I was in D.C. would train to New York all the time for, for weekends. And man, just really go into those places, like you said. And, you know, it went from being kind of like this kind of secret people infiltrating it, kind of going into now you're just there. You know, you don't yeah. have to see those people anymore. It's just not the same. And to your point, they, you know, were tormented in that same block for decades and now someone else is going to get to put a legal stone. It's just not right. I mean, I mean we, we, we could talk for hours about yeah, how, how gentrification has ripped out the soul of basically <laughs> every great American city. Um, and yeah. I use great American loosely. Anyway, w- would you mind talking to me about your experience as a black man in a high level position in the cannabis industry? Oh man. Well, that experience is every day. I mean, uh, Cannabis safe, I, I guess, uh, what's been interesting, I've always been a black man, right? So I've always been dealing with uh, different ways of being seen in my community, whether it be as an athlete where it's okay, to engineering school where it's like, what are you doing here? You know, uh, you know, to my first management job of like, why, how are you my boss kind of deal? So I've definitely felt all flavors of it. Um, what I, I mean, I guess I recently call myself an exec simply because one, the title, but two, Cannabis safe is also now recognized as someone, you know, where you where you start judging and you start having opinions about someone you haven't met. So I'm definitely dealing with a lot of that right now. And it's certainly new, but I'll say one of the most important things is that I think it gives me a very uh, genuine connection to the community, which is why some of the stuff that we've done, like we're the only cannabis company that's hosting one of these six clinics throughout the city of LA that uh, that uh, Felicia, the organization is putting on and really one of the few offered. The other people are churches, the community centers are really wow. pillars of the community. And I think to me, that's very, very um, something no one's been able to accomplish before. I think a lot of that is simply because um, the execs in this companies of my size don't only look like me and they may not respect the same way. They may not approach the community the right way and they don't get inside the community. They just kind of, the community doesn't want them there because it's not genuine. So I think I really appreciate the fact that the community has accepted my company 
although we're not LA guys, which is a very real thing. If you're not from LA, you don't know me get the navigator to move on LA. Um, it's kind of like New York City. <laughs> um, so, um, and then beyond that though, I'm really curious to see how it, uh, how the business, you know, is treated. People, luckily we do things right. So people uh, respect our brand. But I think personally, we're going to start seeing as I sit in bigger chairs and bigger meetings and um, I'm already part of these board chairs and we'll start seeing how it really, how it really gets down, you know? So I don't really know quite yet. I, I know it's not going to be clean. I know it's going to be a challenge. I'm not declaring the whole world racist or anything. I'm just here realizing that shit's different for me when I walk into a room versus someone else. And, you know, a lot of times in this industry, I'll say this, for this industry, I feel it less than I ever had in my life and I'm accepted more than I ever have been. But I would be an idiot to say that it's not a thing. I would be, you know, nothing but a friend of Uncle Tom. I'll be quite frank to say that is, you know, I know it's a strong word, uh, but I feel like I would be if I didn't say I feel it. But I don't think this community is outright trying to make it a thing. I think when you get the traditional NBA cannabis executives that are from other industries, yeah, they make it a thing. But the industry itself, when you go meet the OGs, when you're up in Santa Rosa, when you're in LA, South Central, it's nothing but love when you see those people. When you're in Oakland, nothing but love, right? Like nothing but love in the Bay. So it's, it's just depends on who you're talking to. So, was, I don't know. That was a that was a broad answer, but it's mainly what I'm trying to say is that you have cannabis with who who embraces it, and then you have this new corporate cannabis who is a little more traditional and clearly that's when I start feeling things like, oh, I gotta start, I gotta start dancing and sliding and I gotta start doing those things to to uh, you know, de-escalate my presence. Well, I mean, and it's crazy to me because I mean you have, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, you 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 went to Clemson. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this regarded as one of the best schools in in the country, you yeah. know, and and so, you know, for for me as as somebody who who does teach and, and who recognizes the value, you know, it, it's it's it just it makes me it makes me personally just just pissed off, you know. It's it's like, you know, this this guy's got the education to be where he yeah. is, and, and he, that's what's and I think that's when people talk like when I talk about privilege, that's the things I talk about. It's like, hey. I want to check the box that some people check a box and it just takes them everywhere. Oh, this guy went to Clemson, you know, like, like, like you said, but if I check that box, they find a new way to discredit or it's not as simple. I don't get the same benefits. So it's just like when I talk about, like when you talk about the pressure and the burden of racism or stigmas, it's those residuals. It's like I said, like expungement week, the things where you work your ass off, you become a doctor, you do these things and suddenly you don't get in the country club. And then suddenly you can't, you know, you're not, you don't get promoted as quickly or you find out someone doing the same job makes 20% more than you. And you're like, well, how did that happen? You know, like, like that's what really defeats people. That's what makes people really just uh, give in and just, you know, slide back as society wants to accuse, you know, like people do, oh, well, they're more violent. Well, it's like, well, when you focus on crime in certain communities, like, yeah, that matters socioeconomically, that matter what color you are. But the fact that there's more black people in that situation, clearly you're going to get more violent statistics about interracial uh, crime. It's, it's just like when the numbers are rigged, you know, as a data scientist, which I kind of have now becoming, like when you realize that you, data can tell whatever numbers you want it to, just depends on how you want to spin it. And that's just, those are the things that create these stigmas and stereotypes that we're trying to normalize, like you said, or destigmatize and bring truth to it, you know, and you're seeing 
our generation, and especially the younger kids. I mean, God, I don't know what you even call them, but the, but the TikTok kids are so like unapologetic to like f you, granddad. It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of inspiring because it's kind of who we thought we were. Then suddenly you send these weekends, oh shit, they're disrupting, and you're kind of like, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, because they're. <laughs> Because they're really, they're just not about the BS because they, you know, they they have friends. They grew up in diverse communities. They're like, this is BS, Grandpa. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, that's my boy and shut the fuck up. <laughs> Whereas even when I was that age, you know, just, you know, being mid-30s here, that wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, I had friends like that, but it wasn't the norm. It wasn't nearly, it was still cool to be racist when I was coming up in the South. Uh, where I think now you you get some pockets of it. Trump is definitely exciting some of that. But as far as the younger generation, it's really you got to get isolated to really be proud. You know, yeah, online you get the you get the online BS, of course, these days. But um, yeah, I, I think things are changing. And um, not sure where the question was, <laughs> how we got well, where we were. So what I want to ask is, is you know, why, in in your sort of opinion, you know, you being a, a black executive of, you know, a, a the the only testing lab with this ISO accreditation, right? So, so from from your perspective, why are there so few high level cannabis industry executives that are minorities, people of color? There was a report that came out a few months ago from okay. Maryland that said, you know, that that something like, you know, nine percent of Maryland's medical cannabis injury industry was uh, owned by black people, and then just another like less than one percent of that was black women. So, so mm. what what is what's going on here? In your opinion. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess I think it mimics the rest of this country. I mean, you know, like you know, like you say, you lightly uh, lose the term, use the term great or whatever. Early. I think it's the reality of that we're realizing some of the things that made us great were based on a lot of these things that we don't really uh, stand for, we don't really like. So I think um, one is good that we're talking about those stats, right? Now we're trying to say, hey, this doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, especially when we, I know Maryland is like bliggity black, like there's <laughs> a lot of black people in Maryland, like, you know, DC is chocolate city, right? Like, you know, that's, you know, like this is not one of those places where there's not a lot of us there. So, uh, so it doesn't make a lot of sense when you really, uh, especially the fluent, that's something I've realized in Maryland, you got a lot of fluent black people in Maryland, a lot of people yeah. living in, in, in these nice homes and, Big job. So anyway, that being said, um, I think you're just seeing the reflection of corporate, the corporatization. I mean, I think those numbers are probably better than other industries, most likely, right? I'm sure they're probably a lot better than, you know, people banking. who own, you know, water treatment or banking or real estate and such. Now, you know, all these other industry people have made lots of money and that won't necessarily promote. But I think on top of that, I think there's a big push not to encourage the equity, not to encourage people to enter because they, this is a, this is a big, there's a big gap to close right now. You know, this is the generational wealth opportunity, whereas in about two or three years, it's going to be gobbled up. You're not going to be able, yeah, you maybe can get a business and a shop and, you know, it'll be similar to owning a convenience store and make some money, but you're not going to be, you know, generating, they're talking about billionaires made in cannabis, you know, after, uh, you know, a year or two. Now, if that many come out of this to begin with, because the big companies are already gobbling them up. So you're not going to get that many new billionaires. You're going to get a lot of billionaires getting trillionaires for this or whatever, but you're not going to get a lot of true cannabis billionaires due to the fact of what you're seeing. I mean, even you're seeing the tech gobble up already. You're seeing these big tech companies buy up all the tech software that will be really, really valuable once it's legalized with all the data. They've already cashed out. So, you know, that kind of shows you that the people in cannabis probably won't be the ones becoming the really rich because of such. 
And um, that's why I think the equity programs suck, because if you get a lot of people right now that are really earning and getting their foot in, they have to get paid. And I think that's something that this country isn't a big fan. I know, like, you know, it, 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 it just makes too much sense when you break it down because the opportunity is now. Um, it's going to be some people have done well, but, you know, if you have a whole community stand up and start, um, you know, cycling the money through its own community, that becomes a real problem. I mean, like, you, you're talking about, like, real deep-rooted political, like, yeah, you're you're bigger than cannabis, you're actually going to fuck a lot of stuff up if you start <laughs> teaching people that, you know, so I hate to say it, I hope it becomes what we do, but, like, if you start getting people doing stuff like that, then all of a sudden, um, you know, yeah, you're going to disrupt a lot of industry, like a lot of different things, you know, like if people stop being consumers and start being owners, you know, like that's, I mean, that's people don't realize, like the black and brown community is the biggest consumer power in the entire country because we don't own a lot of things. So everything that we make, we have to buy, we have to give someone something. I mean, that's, that's why you saw as crazy as it was, some of the, uh, the things like Jordans and things went up in a pandemic, some of the luxury retail that, because there were, you know, people had money, they were getting checks and they spent it on the things that they're used to spending it on. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed a lot of major retailers are going super urban right now. I mean, even fucking Travis Scott, Happy Meal, whatever the hell that shit is, and McDonald's now, like, yeah. Travis, like, it's nuts because they realize, hey, the community that's spending money are these hype beast teens and the black people, so let's make sure we give them something they want. So I'm seeing a lot of uh, major brands really push towards this and maybe it's good because it could be equitable you know people are getting opportunities to be brand representation they never were before so whether it be a justice a reaction to justice whatever it may be it's an opportunity for that wasn't there before so you kind of got to be thankful for even the things that are there although they may not be based in the right things but it's tilting somewhat how we see consumers and marketing and um you know who can who can quote unquote that a product you know you know it's a very clean box of who would you put in front of somebody before where now it's getting a little bit more risky quote unquote you know but that's just what america looks like so why not i mean we should have the gay person the black person the arabic person i mean that is that's who america is you know like we shouldn't be scared to put these other people in front of the camera to claim your product it shouldn't have to be a white american to sell america to afford to be americana quote unquote americana is uh, black, brown, purple, red, whatever, you know, like that is Americana. Do you think that it's <clears throat> harder for black people who may want to get into the touching the plant side of it, the cultivation, the, you know, uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, say testing or, you know, gotcha. other sort of ancillary industries? Um, harder. I'm not really sure how to say, because regardless of it all, it's expensive because all the rules, regulation, paperwork, if you're not getting, it's really difficult because if you don't have enough money for a lawyer, compliance, you're not going to be legal enough. And then if you're in the wrong neighborhood, they're going to prosecute, they're going to, you know, look at you harder. So I think regardless, coming into cannabis is more difficult to handle the business. No access to banking. You can't get loans. You can't run payroll. All these expenses. I mean, think about some of the original uh, assistance from COVID. You had to have a bank account and running payroll in order to get it. Most of these small business owners don't run payroll. If you're in cannabis, you can't get banking. So you're triple screw. You know, like not only are you down because everybody's down, but then you can't get relief. So um, I think it's more about 
that's why I said the city and the states have to be involved because you have to provide structure to protect them. You have to give them banking. If you've declared someone an equity business owner and knowing the challenges of it, you should create a program that includes banking, resources, education, whatever it may be, because you know they're not going to be able to actually accomplish this stuff. They, they aren't going to raise $20 million to be able to afford a whole team. You know, like, no one's going to give them money. What business experience do you have? Oh, I just got out of jail. Oh, I mean, like, come on. Like, you know, it's, it's like a trap, which is why they call it the trap. You know, that's why you get rappers. It is just constantly, there's constantly some type of trap door to make someone impossible for someone to actually rise above um, and stand tall, you know, and that's what we're talking about. And that's why we're really trying to um, find different ways to ensure that those things don't become traps. So, I, I mean, I really, really appreciate how, you know, honest you've been throughout this conversation, man. You know, it, it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a white guy who lives in the middle of the woods who has no interest in opening a, a cannabis <laughs> business. So, so, so to, to, to get, you know, just sort of your insight from your experience who, who's living it, I think is, it, it's why I think one of the most important conversations I've had on this podcast in a very long time. Um, the, what I want to ask you, you know, just to sort of close up is what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are interested in entering the lab side of the industry specifically? Oh man, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Simple as that. I wouldn't do this crap again right now. Knowing the things I'm dealing with and the unsavory practices that I have to compete with, it's just, it's just too much to overcome. We're seeing a bunch of labs right now actually go out of business because they can't compete with some of the other people who raise money and are just doing dirty, dirty stuff. Um, what I'll say to anybody, though, I, mean, I know we focus on black and brown, but I think the problem is really um, are there for all colors. Uh, you know, obviously, black and brown people always have it a little bit bigger, but, like, I remind people as well, like, I know a bunch of white people as well. I've sat in these meetings in city council in LA because I went, I went so I could understand that stuff. And there were plenty of white people there as well that were, that were literally just saying, like, I can't get a bank either. I have felonies. And every time I go somewhere, um, my felonies follow me as well. So suddenly they become, quote unquote, a minority, you know, like they feel what it's like to be held against. So my biggest advice to anybody is just to um, go to your city council and demand these programs because there's opportunities when they're first being established to get this stuff enforced and demand it. And quite frankly, they try to shuffle all this stuff through and they're quiet about it simply because they don't want you to think about it. They want to sing the prices of cannabis that is coming. So you don't worry about how it's coming. So you really need to be involved with the how you have to activate. I mean, that's really, think about, I mean, I think about the Black Panther Party, no matter how you may view them. I think about all these movements. I mean, whether even be the Klan, quite, I mean, quite frankly, like you have to be political. This country is so political. You have to get involved with exactly what is happening on the lawmaking side. And quite frankly, you now have an advantage in 2020 where one by people can vote. You have access to polls. Obviously, there's been some motives and things going around to discourage people to be able to vote and whether it be mail-in or whatnot. And you have to realize they're putting that effort in because of the power associated with voting. I mean, you know, I know voting isn't the answer. I know the electoral college is screwed up. I totally get it. Um, I know it's not, uh, you know, the end-all, be-all to all of our problems. Well, I'm not claiming voting is going to solve everything. I'm not one of those people either. But it's a starting point. 
and I'm literally from affecting the rules in LA to Sacramento and the BCC, I've learned that, hey, if you talk to them and you make sense, they have to listen, help you. You elect them. I mean, like, you're so powerful. We don't, because we don't get told how powerful we are. We are. I mean, it's interesting going to uh, Furman, the liberal arts school I went to. I remember hearing these kids being like, hey, you work for me. And I was kind of like, damn, that sounds like an asshole. But, but I get, like, he's been taught his whole life that, like, no, I'm like, I put you here. And it's true. And, 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 and as dirty as it sounds when it comes from the kid in Sperry's and, uh, and a freaking uh, Columbia fishing shirt, it's true. Like, you know, we make fun of those quote-unquote chads, but it's true, though. Like, you do, they do work for you. And you need to put them to work and make sure and make sure that, um, you know, they're doing the things that you want them to and, and that they have to hear you. You know, you should write letters, too. We do a lot of that here as well. You know, I have plenty of letter correspondence from senators and whatnot that I've written to like, hey, this is a problem in your community. What are you going to do about it? And sometimes it's, you know, not the best answer, but, you know, you get an idea where they're at and you can go see them the next time and follow up on it and make them have a conversation. A lot of people don't realize that you can drive a conversation through your local representatives and local government is how you make change also. FYI, yeah, the election, presidential, electoral college, yeah, that's a pretty daunting uh, task there. But your local election, you can make some serious waves and you can, I mean, look at, I mean, as a Harvey Milk and San Fran for cannabis in general, I mean, the history of uh, Brownie Mary and what what's happened in San Fran doing the Compassion Act. I mean, AIDS got us here. I mean, that's what blows my mind is that if it wasn't for Compassion in San Fran and NorCal and some of the other AIDS Compassion movement, cannabis probably would still not be legal. You know, they'd probably be fine ways to make it illegal, but the people that came together to say, no, we need this, made it the way that it was, you know? So that's, um, that's what people don't realize that history, all those things that have happened. And I do want to make sure I clarify that I was not comparing the Black Panthers and the Klan whatsoever. That's on my mind right now. I cannot even, I know I admitted them both at the same time, but only in, only in the reflection of the political engagement required to actually get people's attention. You know, sitting at home tweeting about it isn't going to get it done. So you're going to have to eventually get up and go to the poll or, or, or go to your city council and make yourself heard. You are a fascinating human being, and I want to hang out with you. Um, <laughs> be, be, before before, before we, we sort of wrap up here, I just want to ask you, it's just sort of briefly, did you expect to sort of become this activist by coming into this industry? Absolutely not, man. I mean, like, this is honestly, and I'm also thankful that, you know, Aaron allows me to focus on that in the job, because he could easily have me focused on the making more money, laboratory work and whatnot. But no, I mean, this role is really what we realized was necessary to make change. And you know, you know, you know, you see, I'm mistaken. I'm, I'm the president now simply because I'm not operating. We had to find a title and things that make sense or what it is. And Aaron said, no, I want you to be an ambassador for the thing. I want the president to be an ambassador for what we stand for. I want you to be in the community and people to be understand this is what Canada Safe is and cares about. So it's been kind of this super encouraging or exciting um, benefit to this role is that I get to suddenly affect people. And I, and that's kind of where I mentioned with the aerospace, you know, I've built a kill, but it's true. Like, you know, I'm building fighter jets, you know, we're not, we're not shuffling aid over in fighter jets, you know? So it's like one of those deals where you realize what you're really contributing, what energy you're really putting out there. And when you can check it and say, oh shit, like I, now I'm giving a kid CBD oil, I'm giving someone's grandmother access to legal medicine that they can like that is what, you know, makes me 
speak the way I do, understand the nation, the world the way I do, simply because I have to figure out how to move the needle. Talking about it, running a business isn't going to get it done. Giving a check to a community center isn't going to get it done. So I've had to dig into how do you actually make change. Forcing my mother uh, before she passed was a huge activist. Grew up in Birmingham, Alabama in the middle of the 60s. So clearly understood community activism and always reminded me of different things of how to make change. And I was involved with little community things. I was a nerdy kid and little student government things because she wanted me to understand how to make things. I didn't really get it. I didn't use it. I didn't do anything, unfortunately, with it in college. But now I'm like, oh. Duh, you know, it's just like, <laughs> now let's just use the things that fortunately I had someone and my father and mother put these things into me. Yeah, I may have not used them before you really wanted me to, but now I'm here I am in the position of being a business owner and president, and I'm going to use them now, you know, maybe better late than never, right? You know, that's kind of the idea, you know, like, like whatever. Like, I, I was a bit of a, you know, I was a college athlete, frat boy, so I may have my fun. I mean, I wasn't doing all the work my whole life, but now I'm, uh, you know, I'm putting time in now, <laughs> trying to put time in. And where can people find out more about you and about Canasafe? Uh, you know, give us give us the the social yeah. media and all that. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, www.cacelabs.com for all your testing and education. All of our partners. We have a physicians corner as well. So we're not just about business. We also have real doctors giving you real opinions about how you can um, you know dose yourself. Because it's on Instagram. We are officially blue check verified. One of the five few. <laughs> few cannabis businesses out there with the blue wow. check. Super proud of that. Super proud of being a community beacon on there. Um, you can also find us on LinkedIn um, and everywhere. The Gunpreneur, all these other good people doing good work. You know, if people are doing good work, please connect us and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to, you know, partner there. So everywhere is tied in. I would suggest Instagram, website, and all the good people out there. So um, I'm super excited about this. Hope it turns out well. I know I blab a lot. I hope I didn't get too <laughs> preachy. I am a Southern boy. I grew up in church. So excuse me if I ever get a little bit lengthy or like that. Um, but that's just how I was taught to communicate. So, uh, you know, nah, man, this is some of that. This has been a pleasure, man. This has been a pleasure. That's Antonio yeah. Frazier. He's yeah. the president of CannaSafe, uh, California-based ISO accredited cannabis and hemp testing lab. Antonio, man, thanks so much. I, 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 we, we could go on and I would absolutely love to, but uh, we unfortunately are out of time. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gontrepreneur.com on Spotify and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you'll find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play and on Spotify. I think I already mentioned that. Anyway, this episode was engineered by Trim at Media House. I've been your host, TG Brandfault. 